Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Radical Food. This is Logan Haley. Last episode, I talked a little bit about the Green Revolution and the industrialization of agriculture. And at the end, I mentioned that this next episode was going to be about the small farms revival and some inspiring folks in the small farms movement. I lied. I'm sorry. I'm going to go a little bit of a different route with this episode. And that's really because if I just want to be honest with you guys, I am absolutely overflowing with ideas for this podcast and I've got a million things to say, if you can't tell already. I've got notebooks, you know, scrawled and overflowing with ideas. So I'm trying to figure out how to get all these things across in the clearest way to you and in a way that makes sense to people who may not know anything about this stuff. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to I'm going to progress into those really interesting and exciting topics like soil and nutrients and farming methods and the small farms revival and food justice and solving the problems of unequal distribution of food. I'm going to go into all of those things, but for now, I want to provide a baseline of information which future episodes will build upon. So with that being said, cue episode two. But it really isn't very radical to say that the Green Revolution ultimately resulted in consolidation, monopolization, and concentration, all of which lead to control. 75% of the global seed market is now controlled by seven corporations. 23% of that entire market is owned just by Monsanto. Okay, seeds are being genetically modified. Corporations are patenting seeds so that they can't be saved or replanted. There's this huge loss in genetic diversity within our seed banks. And by controlling these seeds, the corporations are controlling agriculture. In addition, all of these seeds and these agricultural practices are heavily dependent on synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, and soil fumigants. 80% of the global agrochemical industry is controlled by just five corporations. And I'll have all those sources for those facts listed below. The point of all of this is that, sure, the Green Revolution has some great accomplishments, like over the past 30 years, global agricultural production has doubled and world agricultural trade has increased threefold, okay? But... That seed control, that chemical control, is a direct result of that. The Green Revolution increased crop output. Meanwhile, millions of people in the world are still going hungry because the Green Revolution and all the corporations really neglected to address uh, a key component to solving hunger issues, which is that hunger is created by an unequal distribution of food rather than a lack of resources. So really, it's pretty easy to call out Earl Butts and Norman Borlaug and all the Green Revolution agribusiness guys because they completely miss the point. And really, they ultimately reveal themselves. They don't care about solving hunger. They don't care about people. They care about profits. And when people 
and corporations become so profit-centered and so greedy, they will do anything to make those profits, and they don't care if they destroy the resources that all of humanity and all of future generations to come depend on. They don't care if they poison our bodies and poison the land and poison all the animals and the waterways. They don't give a shit, and that's because they're driven by profits. And profits would be a great thing, obviously, if they stayed in the local economy, if they stayed on the farms, if they were used to improve the wages and workplace environment for farm workers, or if they were used to return organic matter back to the soil and invest in quality inputs that can improve the farming system, but that is just not the case. Just like the food that is grown in one place and then transported all across the globe, the profits don't stay on the farm. And this really all goes back to a question that I've always had. It's like, where are the corporate farms? And the more digging you do, you realize there aren't really corporate farms because the corporations don't want to take on the inherent risk of farming. They don't want to deal with the weather and crop failures and pest pressures and all those things. So they externalize those risks and they create these production contracts. And you'll even see like in the census of ag from the USDA, they will brag that 97% of American farms are considered family farms. But what they don't talk about is that a huge percentage of those farms are actually on contract. They have these production contracts with corporations that can milk them dry. And this is all too common. Um, a more well-publicized example of it is in the poultry industry with companies like Tyson Foods. They go into rural areas. They find these family farms and they create contracts with them where basically the corporation owns the chickens and the feed and the medication and they send advisors to supervise the farm, but the farmers themselves have to take on all the risk and they have to go into a ridiculous amount of debt to keep putting up those poultry houses and um, getting all the equipment and infrastructure they need to maintain their contract. So eventually the corporations like Tyson put these family growers into this perpetual cycle of debt and dependence. So when you hear the government bragging that most of the farms in the country are family farms, you have to remember that actually, in reality, most of them are ruled by corporate control and the concentration of power in the food system. And no matter how much People like that nostalgic idea of these small family farms dotting the countryside. That image is increasingly exploited and is really not what is going on in rural America. I mean, the average acreage of farms in general in America as of 2012 was 440 acres. I mean, that is absolutely massive. And yes, these farms are technically owned by families, but just remember that the farmers aren't benefiting from this corporate influence in the food system. They're being exploited most often just like 
the farm workers are being exploited and the animals are being exploited and the land is being exploited. I mean, they're in that same cycle of dependence. So all these immense environmental and social and economic and political problems associated with this huge corporatization of agriculture really come as no surprise because that's what happens when you take the culture out of agriculture and you turn it into agribusiness. In other words, a food production system driven by greed and not caring about land or people. So I want to share a quote from a great book by Wendell Berry. The Unsettling of America, Culture and Agriculture. And he talks a lot about that shift from agriculture to agribusiness and how the removal of, you know, the human and animal element from farming has created all these massive problems because farms are inherently living ecosystems made up of living beings. And I really think he embodies this perfectly in um, one of these quotes I'm about to read from The Unsettling of America. Wendell Berry says, The people will eat what the corporations decide for them to eat. They will be detached and remote from the sources of their life, joined to them only by corporate tolerance. They will have become consumers purely, consumptive machines, which is to say the slaves of producers. That it is impossible to mechanize production without mechanizing consumption. Impossible to make machines of soil, plants, and animals without making machines also of people. Can I say that one more time? It's impossible to make machines of soil, plants, and animals without making machines also of people. And I think he really drives home the point there. That quote is from the chapter Living in the Future, where Wendell Berry talks about, you know, the modern agricultural ideal and this, you know, fantasized, highly mechanized form of agriculture that was first being developed by the corporations and by the government who were working together to create this industrialist dream of farming. And Secretary of Agriculture Earl Butts who I mentioned in the previous episode, was really a big part of that, okay? He's the guy who said, get big or get out. He was all about making farms huge and making it impossible for the small family businesses to compete anymore. I mean, he bragged in 1974 that only 4% of all U.S. farms produced almost 50% of all farm goods. And it's probably even more today. He seemed to praise the corporations for their ability to monopolize the food industry. And ultimately, Earl Butts is a poster child of the link between multinational food corporations and the U.S. government. So as we delve more into these topics about the food system and about hunger and the decimation of rural economies and the decline of the small farm, I want you to remember that the Green Revolution and all this industrialization was not by accident. I mean, it was very intently planned by people who truly believe that farms are machines and that land can be exploited, that people can be exploited all for the profit of a select few. And I'm here on Radical Food to tell them that that's not true. 
It is absolutely foolish to destroy the resources of today um, without thinking about generations of tomorrow. So this leads into the second part of today's podcast, which is where I wanted to tell you a little bit about me and a little bit about my response to all these horrible negative things I've been telling you about the food system. You might be thinking now, man, this chick Logan, she's kind of depressing. She just talks about all the fucked up shit happening in the world and on farms. But really, I'm quite a positive person, and I created this podcast. One of the main reasons is to educate people about what's going wrong, but also to inspire them and empower them to stand up for community food systems, for taking our lives and our food back into our hands, back into our control. And that's really how I got into all of this. That's what has made me want to seriously pursue a lifestyle and career as an ecological farmer. And this really all started for me with listening to punk music and being part of an alternative subculture that adamantly despises most things about modern society. And naturally, that led to a lot of, you know, rebellion and rage. And eventually, I came to the conclusion that change really happens from the bottom up. And if I was really that upset about the way things are, then what am I doing to change it? Am I just talking about it or am I being about it? And from there, I dreamed up this whole idea of complete self-sufficiency. And that kind of guided, you know, all my life decisions up until this point. And I met my life partner, Justin, a.k.a. Cheddar Bob, or Cheesy B. And when we first met in Austin, Texas, we immediately bonded over this shared vision of being self-sufficient, having this off-grid homestead and growing our own food and having chickens and dogs running everywhere and solar panels and a pantry full of homegrown, home-canned food. It's really crazy now, uh, four years later, we are actually making this happen. I mean, so much change has happened in, in just four years between us two and in our lives. It's, it's absolutely mind-blowing to me, but we have realized that our calling or whatever you want to call it, our meaning for life is becoming self-sufficient and not depending on this horrible industrial system that has been created to make people completely dependent on it. So corporations can rule our lives and money can rule our lives. And we didn't like that. We've never liked that. And so we're devising solutions. So over the years, we've gotten into gardening and home brewing and canning and all sorts of DIY projects. But ultimately, that led us to farming. I mean, we want to make the biggest difference we can, and community food systems are really what's going to let us achieve that. So by pursuing careers as beyond organic farmers, that's basically us saying you, Monsanto and Tyson and ConAgra and Smithfield and all of Big Ag, it's our way of saying no. No! I don't want to say no. 
can't do this to our food system. You can't do this to our communities. You cannot do this to our health and our soil and our land and our air and our water. We will not allow it. So it's this whole David and Goliath thing. I mean, you'll see it all the time with the seed companies and the small farmers and a lot of things I'm going to talk about on the podcast. It is always the small, community-driven, you know, groups of farmers who are the little guys up against these big, massive corporations in all their power and whatever. But that is what's inspiring to me. That is what keeps me going. Okay, the more I learn about this stuff, the more I learned how messed up and how deeply ingrained it is in our society. I'm able to take that and I'm able to transform it into something positive, something that pushes me forward every day to say, no, this isn't going to happen. We are powerful people. The community of people I'm involved with, and I know people all over the world have inspired me and are inspiring others because we can do this. Food is our livelihood. And if we want to change our communities, if we want to live in a better world, we have to start with our food. So I personally intend to be a part of this radical food revolution, and I hope I can inspire you to be too. But for now, I want to stay on topic and just share with you guys my response to all of this and why I'm doing what I'm doing. So right now, uh, Cheddar Bob and I are working on converting this short school bus into an off-grid tiny home. This is something we've been dreaming about for what seems like forever. And it's a huge part of our move towards complete self-sustainability and independence from the corporate industrial system. And I know what you're thinking by now. You're like, what does a school bus have to do with food? What does that have to do with a food system? Well, I kind of think of our bus as a vessel for change. It's basically going to be our home for at least the next five years, if not more. And we're going to travel from farm to farm living off-grid in our bus and learning as much as we can about farming all along the way. So while there aren't many uh, farm punks traveling around living in their bus with three dogs like us, there is a community of people who convert old retired school buses into tiny homes and travel around and live with them, and they call themselves the schoolies. The coolest thing for me about the schoolie community is the mentality that we can do it. We can do anything, and... That mentality is super inspiring because going into this project, I mean, we have no carpentry skills. We, I mean, Justin has a little, some basic carpentry, but not much. We don't know much about building. We're just figuring things out along the way. And I think the schoolie community really embodies a huge part of my life, which is just the DIY mentality, do it yourself. And that all was inspired by punk music and folk punk music for me, the people who are DIYing albums, recording all their own shit, saying they don't need a record label or whatever to release their music. They're going to play it on the corner, they're going to record it, and they're going to release it, and they're going to create their own thing. And that's kind of what DIY is about for me. It's about It's about taking your life in your own hands, being self-sufficient, doing things on your own, and not relying on other people. 
So by building a school bus and converting it into our own off-grid tiny home, we have complete creativity for one. I mean, this is almost 100 square feet of space that is completely ours. Two is that we're mobile and self-contained. And that has been our dream pretty much forever. We can go to any farm, to any city, to any wilderness, and live in our bus and be completely self-sufficient, completely off-grid, and we have freedom to do all the things we want to do. Eventually, that's going to be really helpful when we decide to settle down and start our farm because our plan is to live in the bus basically from when we finish it for however many years we travel around farming and adventuring and then to the point where we get our land and hopefully have a rural piece of land where we can live off-grid in our bus and get our farm and our homestead started without the pressure to immediately build a house and immediately start building the farm and trying to get everything going at the same time. We have a house. We own our house, you know, and we're both in our 20s. We're going to be debt-free owning our own house when this bus is completed. And that's really exciting for me, and that feels very comforting to imagine you know, down the road when we want to start our farm and we really want to get going, we don't have to go into a bunch of debt building our own home because we already have a home. And so we can focus on getting our business started and getting our homestead up and running and kind of take things slow. And that's what schooly life is all really about. It's about taking things easy. It's about living a slower pace of life, appreciating the small things, living in a small space and making it work and being you know, as close to free as you can probably get in modern society. We've realized that there's not really just one way to live your life. There's a million different ways you can do things. And my perspective on it is really, how am I going to decide what kind of life I want to live until I've lived them all? How am I going to know how I want to run my farm and what I want to grow and the growing principles I want to use until I worked on a huge variety of farms in all different climates and can learn all the different ways that I could potentially grow food. Ultimately, this podcast is about the food system and it's about the radical change that we need in the food system But it's also about more than that because there is an entire lifestyle associated with growing, producing, and consuming healthy, real food that comes from healthy soil. It's about taking our lives back from the corporations and learning how to be self-reliant. And it's really funny. I was just listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Farmer to Farmer, with Chris Blanchard. And he brought Frank Morton from Wild Garden Seed onto the show. And I am a huge fan of Frank Morton. I think he's absolutely genius. And I thought it was really funny because he described that he got into farming for the exact same reasons that really I am. Because one, he wanted to be self-reliant and self-sufficient. Two, because he wanted to be creative, you know, and be involved with plants and nature. And three, because he wanted to create his own schedule and have time for himself. And really farming is the only job in this society that fits that bill. Now I'm not saying that we all need to be farmers, but this is a lifestyle that's slowly being lost. 
in the late 1700s, 90% of the population was farmers. And even in the 1930s, 21% of the population was farmers. But now, in 2017, it's less than 2% of the American population. We are losing farming culture, and we are losing this way of life. And I actually recently wrote a poem about this. I wrote, As I crouch, knees in loam, hands in perfect rhythm, dancing a dance of old humanity, life before urbanity, when food grew from wholesome dirt, when people tended to their earth, gently with hands rough and strong, stomachs full and nurtured, needs met, smiling at simple miracles of seed and sunrise. What I'm trying to express in that poem is that certain something, this thing I can't quite put my finger on, which is the magic of growing your own food and being part of community-driven grassroots initiatives and that feeling in your heart that you're really doing something that's exciting and invigorating and is making a change for the better. So I'll end this episode with a stanza uh, from that poem I just read a quote from. Late afternoon, golden warmth over sun-drenched farm, when plants bask beneath the great light, inhale air, water, and mineral, brewing sweet nectar of life. As I hold hoe in hand, knife on hip, peace in mind, singing an ancient farm song newly revived by bright-eyed revolutionaries digging deep roots, redefining food in a strange time when people think farms are machines and dinner is prepackaged, eating corporatized diets of corn, wheat, and plastic, deep night black and onyx sky over young farmers, muck boots in mud, beers grasped by dirty work gloves, when not even city lights dare shine in country skies. As we play old folk tunes round late July fire, cooking vegetables fresh from our fertile fields, celebrating sweet summer season once more, then sleep before we wake again to care for land that keeps giving, keeps growing, keeps sprouting our seeds, keeps singing those ancient songs, tunes we desperately need. I'm Logan Haley. Thanks for listening to Radical Food.